All right, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 10 today. Uh, I was going to do Revelation 10 and 11, and then as I was getting it all together, I thought this will be a four-hour sermon, and so I didn't want to put you through that. So we're just going to do chapter 10 today. We'll jump into uh, chapter 11 next Sunday instead. And some of you have asked, uh, we have got some news this week from our government just in terms of the reopening plan over the next couple of months and what does that mean for churches. And some of you are asking what our plan is. And my answer at the moment is actually we don't know. Uh, We just found this news out uh, late on Thursday. We haven't had time to really dig into it. We haven't had time to sit as a staff yet and figure it out. But what they had been hinting at for a while that we were sort of quasi prepared for was that outdoor stuff would start to open up first and then eventually indoor stuff stuff. And so um, it does seem at the moment, and I have calls into our MPP's office and into the health unit just to sort through exactly what it means, but it seems that we might have options to gather together bigger and faster if we do some outdoor stuff. So we might do some outdoor stuff this summer, and we might do church out there. We might buckle down and wait a few weeks longer till we can come back in again. We just don't know just yet. We're still figuring all that stuff out. So you can be praying for us in that. Um, And I just wanted to mention as well, Um, just because this came up this past week, that, uh, you know, we, I have never spoken to the health unit ever in my life before COVID hit, and now we're like best friends. Like, we talk all the time. Uh, Occasionally would have talked to a member of parliament or a member of provincial parliament, but I'm talking to them all the time right now. So, I mean, I'm... (laughs) I don't need to be in the newspaper for how we're advocating and how we're defending churches. We're not trying to be a a really loud public voice in all of this, but just so you know, we are advocating constantly for churches behind the scenes, and and I am writing letters. Rob Dukeman, our board chair, has also been talking to the authorities, and we are constantly pushing them to let us reopen safely and tell us what to do, and we will do it safely and everything. So we're doing that all the time. So just because we're not maybe making a show of it or telling you all the time that we're doing it. Please, I just thought it was important this week just because someone was asking about it. Like, we are doing this all the time. We are constantly uh, defending the church and pushing that forward. And so as we begin to make sense of this latest news, we'll let you know as soon as we can. And the good news in all of it is that it just seems like we're moving forward. It seems like there is hope as steps are being taken and there is there are targets now that uh, we can actually look at as we seek to hit them. And so there's good stuff going on. So we're excited about all of that stuff. So as we work our way through our series, Apocalypse Now, walking through the book of Revelation a little at a time, uh, what we're going to do here is we're going to do this for a few more weeks, and then we're going to take a break for the summer, and some of that is just I'm not going to be here uh, for the whole summer. I've got a bit of holidays that I'll be taking, and then also just because uh, Revelation is a really dense, deep book, and we just thought, let's get a breath in the middle there. We'll pick it up again in the fall. We will be done it by Christmas, and so by Christmas time, we'll have walked through the whole book as a church, which I think is pretty awesome. So we'll do this for a few more weeks, and then we'll take a break. We'll do some different things in the summer as we figure that all out in terms of of what it means for church and what we're able to do, but uh, we're going to dig in for a few more weeks in this here. So as we get into chapter 10 today, so the worst part about not being God is you don't get to know everything. I would think one of the the great advantages of being God is you get to know everything. You know everything. You know everything that's happened, everything that's happening, everything that will happen. And because of that, you don't worry about anything when you're God. You know and you're in control of it all. And so you are perfectly at peace as God with information, whereas we don't have that. We don't know much. 
And because we don't know much, we do worry. And we are fearful at times. And we do get stressed out. And we do get anxious. And so to not be God means we don't get to know everything. When you're God, you get to know everything. And so in the book of Job, Job is one of the great, beautiful, uh, challenging parts of Scripture where Job goes through all these trials and, and horrible things happen. And much of the book of Job is him crying out to God. It's his lament. It's him saying to God, God, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? I've, I've walked before you. I've been faithful. I've been good. And, and this great uh, struggle that all of humanity struggles with, which is why do bad things happen to good people sometimes? And so that is Job's cry. And his friends come alongside supposedly to comfort him, but they're not very much comfort at all, and they kind of make him feel worse. And so Job is crying out to God, just, I want an answer. I wish that we could be like in a courtroom, so at least I would hear your argument, your case against me. Lord, like, why is this happening. And then at the end of Job, God shows up with his response. And it's not the response that Job is looking for, because God doesn't explain actually anything that Job is looking for answers for. God's answer is essentially this, Job, I am God, and you are not. And that's about it. That's about the only answer that Job gets. I'm God, and you're not. God says it much more beautifully and poetically than that. But God says, Job, I'm God. I know things that you don't know. I'm up here, and you're down here. And the creation does not have the right to demand answers from the creator. I am God, and you are not. And there will be things in this life that you don't understand. And then he, with, as, even as he says that, that unsatisfying answer perhaps, uh, he also blesses Job and restores him. So there is redemption there. But when we're not God, we just don't have that right. And so as human beings, we talked about this back in our Truth Seeker series that we did back in the fall. As humans, when you think of the vast scope of knowledge and information that's out there on every topic, as individuals, we are ignorant about almost everything. Right? Almost everything. We all have some areas that we know some stuff about, but there's a whole lot of things that we don't know anything about. We're ignorant, and that's not a bad word. That's actually a great word. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are ignorant, but say it with love. It's a loving thing. We use ignorance as an insult at times, but all the word means is you don't know. And we usually use it as an insult when someone's trying to know, right? They're trying to act like they know something that they don't know. But in ignorance, it just means you don't know something. And at its best, ignorance can drive us to humility and curiosity, where we say, you know what? I don't know. I don't know lots of things. And therefore, I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. I don't need to have it all figured out. I don't need to have understanding of everything. I can fully be at peace with the fact that I don't know. I'm all right with that. But that also hopefully makes me curious and it makes me want to learn more. Hopefully that makes me teachable where I understand, hey, I need to learn. I need to learn from other people. I need to learn from people who know more than I do. And ultimately, I need to lean into the God who actually does know everything about everything. So my job in this life is not to become a master of information because I can't Google enough to become an expert in absolutely everything. But as I'm trying to live out my life, as I'm making decisions, as I'm trying to sort through what do I do, which path do I take, where do I go, my job isn't to master the information. My job is to press into the God who knows everything and is more than capable of telling me what I should do. My job is to be a discerner of God's will. My job is to be one who positions myself with him 
so that I can sense his leading and where he wants me to go. And in that sense, the pressure's off. Like the pressure can be off on so much when we understand that and when we say, hey, I don't need to have the answers on everything. I just need to do what God's telling me to do. And that is our main job. In the book of James, God says in his word, like we shouldn't even as humans be saying, well, next week I'll do this and I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna make some money here or there. He says the most we should say is, if it's God's will, I will go and do those things. That the people of God are to be a discerning people. That it's not just about what I want or what I think or what I read online. Our prayer constantly is, God, what do you want me to do in this scenario? Because I know you have all the information. You have all the answers. Nothing is mysterious to you. And so if you're not seeking God's will first and foremost in your life, this is one of those moments where you say, are you even a Christian Because Christians are one who seek his will. When Jesus taught us to pray, it was, Father, let your will be done. And we let his will direct where we go in our lives. And the reason we do that, the reason that we trust that, is because he is God and we are not. He knows more than we do. He has all the information. Nothing is mysterious to him. So even if it's mysterious to us, my job first and foremost is not necessarily to master the mystery as much as it is to say, God, what is your will? Where are you leading me right now? So let's take a look at our text. We're in Revelation chapter 10. Revelation is one of these mysterious books. We don't know all that it means. Not everything is made crystal clear to us, but that is okay. Uh, We're less approaching this series as, hey, we're going to master this book by the end of it. We're actually going to be at peace with some of the mystery of it, understanding that if God really needed us to know something, he would tell us clearly what it is. He is a God who wants to be known. And so if he doesn't tell us something, then we must not need to know that. So last week we were going through trumpet blasts, remember? We heard one, two, three, four, five, six trumpets. There was one trumpet left. We didn't get to that one in chapter 9, but we're going to get to that part uh, as we go through the next couple of chapters. So in Revelation chapter 10, let's start in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I'd seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. That scroll thing's a nice little metaphor for pregnancy, eh, Pastor Sarah? You eat it, and then it just goes sour once it's in there. That's pretty good. 
All right, so I was going to do 10 and 11 together today. Again, uh, we'll keep chapter 11 for next week. It was going to be a bit long, I thought, and, and it's a long weekend, and so we wanted to keep it a bit shorter today. So we'll jump into 11 next week. We'll stop there at chapter 10. But it begins with an angel, we, yet another angel. We see lots of angels in the book of Revelation. This one seems particularly special, described as another mighty angel. And so there are things in the description of this angel that actually sound a bit like Jesus from back in Revelation chapter 1, that this angel's face is shining, and there's this, the fiery pillar legs, and there's some of those that sound a bit familiar to the way Jesus was described, as well the throne room that we saw in Revelation 4 and 5 talks about a rainbow, and, you know, Jesus is the Lion of Judah, and this angel is roaring like a lion. And so some have speculated that perhaps this angel is Jesus. Uh, I think it's probably not that, only because any time we see Jesus in Revelation, the Bible makes pretty clear that it's Jesus. And so the fact that it's called an angel here, uh, to me, suggests that it's not Jesus. And yet, obviously, there's a lot of heaven shining through this, this being. There is a lot that kind of looks like the authority of heaven, the authority of the Lion of Judah, the rainbow around the throne that's involved there. Uh, this angel comes, and this angel has some things to pronounce, some things to say, shouts like a lion's roar, and then verse 3 and 4 say that when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And so we're not told exactly uh, what those thunders are, but what we have seen already in the book of Revelation is that thunder comes from the throne of God, and when God acts on the earth, there's often thunder involved. And we've talked in Revelation already about that number seven, and seven often is used as a number that means perfection or completion or the divine. And so this, the voice of the seven thunders is not explained clearly to us. I think a reasonable conclusion is, is that it's the voice of the Lord. It's that thundering voice that is coming from the throne of God. The psalmist would say, the voice of the Lord thunders, and it is likened to thunder. And so I think it's probably the Lord speaking, and as to what he is speaking, that's one of those like, oh, what's this incredible voice of God saying? Oh, we don't get to find out. We don't get to see that part, because John is told that part you seal up. You don't let anybody see that part. And that's something that happened to Daniel in the Old Testament. The prophet Daniel got to see some things, and Daniel too was, sold, was told, seal this up. You're not going to share that part. And so we don't know what is said. We don't know why it is said. We don't know why John felt necessary to be like, hey, hey I know a secret. You guys don't know, and yet it's just, it's there. It's in the text. And so there is something about this that we, even if we would like to know, uh, again, just back to that point, that if we really needed to know, God would make sure that we knew. So maybe in heaven we will get to find out, but not every part of this revelation apparently was for us. Not all of it was something that we needed to hear. So then the angel, uh, the voice from the throne says, eat the scroll. Uh, so then, oh sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. 
So this angel swears, and that's something we're actually told we're not supposed to do. Jesus tells us, don't swear oaths, like you can't swear by God because you're just a mortal. Like you don't have the ability as a mortal to swear by God because you can't swear by him. He's God, and heaven is where he lives, and the earth is his footstool. You can't swear by that. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, would tell us, you're not to swear oaths. You're not to swear by God. You're not to say, I swear to God, uh, because you are, you're not strong enough to swear by him. He's too pure and holy. He's too big. He's too great. And so we see, even with this huge angel coming down, like this angel is great, right? This angel is great and mighty. The forces that are on our side are so big and powerful and holy. And so we as humans are told not to swear oaths. Jesus says, you let your yes be yes, and you let your no be no, which is also to say, not just you shouldn't swear by God because he's so much greater than you, but to say, hey, you shouldn't swear because you shouldn't need to do that. You should live your lives with such integrity that your yes means yes and your no means no. If, if I say, hey, John, I'm going to be at your house, I shouldn't have to say, I swear to God I'll be there. If I say I'm going to be there, he should be able to trust me enough. My integrity should be enough that I do what I say and I say what I do. This angel is different than us, however, because this angel is not a human. So this angel is swearing by God and obviously is being sent by God in order to do that. And so this angel is making this, this loud declaration and, and declaring it seemingly to all of creation. And the heart of it are these powerful words, there will be no more delay. That this thing that is unfolding in Revelation will not delay any farther. And God delays things all the time. Like that is part of what it is. The people of God are a waiting people. We are a praying people. We are all waiting for something. We are all praying for something. We are all longing for something. And a lot of the Psalms are, are having to deal with, a lot of the laments that we find there are people of God who are saying, Lord, like why is this wait happening? Right? In Egypt, Israel's crying out, Lord, like why are we in bondage? As they walk through the wilderness, when will we see the promised land? In times of exile, when will you return us home to Jerusalem? When will the Messiah come? That there is this longing, there is, there is just this waiting season. And scripture uses this picture, it's like a farmer. Like you sow the seed, and then the farmer has no choice, you have to wait. And you can't fast forward it, and you can't make the seasons change, and you can't make the rain come or make the sun shine. Like, there's only so much you can do. Your job is to be faithful, to sow the seed and tend to it. But other than that, you're just waiting on the goodness of God. And there are many things, I'm sure, in all of our lives where we are waiting. Where, Lord, is the answer to this prayer? Where is the goodness of God going to show up? Where is my deliverance coming? Where is my healing coming? Where is my breakthrough coming? Where is salvation coming to my home? When, Lord, are you going to do this? And that is the cry of the people of God in Scripture over and over and over again. But then there is a point where heaven declares, there will be no more delay. There is a point where heaven declares that. And we don't always get the answer that we're waiting for, and we might not get the fullness of our answers until we get to heaven. But there will be a point where there is no more delay, where the waiting comes to an end, where God responds from heaven. And this angel says in this particular context, there will be no more delay. The mystery of God is about to be accomplished. And of course, it's only a mystery to us. 
right? It's not a mystery to him at all. One of my favorite lines in the book of Daniel is when uh, Daniel is brought before the king and is told, hey, are you able to solve the mystery of this king's uh, dream that he has had? Are you able to uh, answer the mystery of this? And Daniel says, honestly, no, I can't do anything, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And it's one of the great lines of the book. It's Daniel acknowledging, I don't have any ability whatsoever, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There is a God in heaven who can answer these things. And so we are about to see the answer of the mystery of what is happening here. We are going to see that accomplished. And and the angel says, this is that thing that has been spoken through the prophets. And just a, a note about the prophets for a moment. Amos 3 verse 7 says, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. I'll read that again. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. And we have seen this true from the very beginning, like from Genesis onward, all through Scripture, that whenever God is about to do something on the earth, he tells somebody. He looks for somebody who will be faithful to pray into it, somebody who will be faithful to declare it out, somebody who will be faithful to be obedient. But every time God wants to do something, he tells somebody. He tells some person or a group of people. Those people start praying into it and start partnering in in it with him. And it's just one of the most amazing things that we just see over and over and over again from Genesis to Revelation that God is actually looking for people who are wanting to work with him on this stuff. God says, I want to do something on the earth. Who can I find who will do this with me? Who will declare it? Who will pray into it? Who will be faithful to steward it? Who wants to work with me on this stuff? He doesn't just show up and do it all on his own. From the very beginning, he creates Adam and Eve, and he creates them to steward over creation with him. And that actually hasn't changed. He continues to look for people who will do this with him. And our posture should be, Lord, I want to be one of those people. I want to be one of those people that you can use. I want to be one of those people. Like, show me what you want to do. I want to be one of the ones that lives out your will here on earth. I want to be faithful like the prophets were, to know your will and to walk it out. And so while we won't know everything that God is up to, and and we need to be at peace with that, we might not get answers to everything in this lifetime, we also know that God is one who speaks He speaks by his word. He speaks by his spirit. He reveals himself through scripture. He reveals himself by the Holy Spirit. He reveals himself through Jesus Christ. Like we serve a God who wants to be known. And that doesn't mean we get to know everything. I don't tell my kids everything. They're little. It would be inappropriate to share with my kids everything that I know. But I want them to know me, and I want to share with them what's appropriate for them to know and for what's appropriate for them to learn. And so God has this father's heart of, hey, I want to do something. I'm going to look for people who will do this with me. And our heart, our our posture, our humility should be, Lord, I want to be like Amos talks about here. I want to be one who knows you. I want to be one who knows what you want to do. And that's where our discernment becomes so important. And so God from the throne says, hey, there's the scroll in the angel's hand. Uh, Go and eat it, verse 9 through 11. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. 
I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And so we've seen a scroll already, uh, right? Jesus had a scroll with seals on it that he was breaking. And so some have speculated maybe this is the same scroll. I think it's probably not only because they make sure in this passage to keep saying it's a little scroll. There's an adjective there that isn't there when it's talked about earlier. So I imagine it's a different one. But he goes and, and takes it in and eats it, and it tastes really good, and then his stomach turns sour. And so uh, we said, jokingly, that's a bit of the pregnancy journey that Pastor Sarah's on. I have also learned that is a bit of the journey of turning 40, I've learned. And people sometimes ask, like, what's 40 like? What's different? And I would say, well, this partly, right? Sometimes I eat things that taste really good, and then later they don't do as well by me anymore. That's maybe the main difference, is that I can no longer eat things that are terrible for me like at bedtime, because I'll have a sour evening after that. So that's the main thing about turning 40. The other thing about turning 40 is kids, my kids will shove stuff in my face, look at this drawing, and I have to go like this with it now, which I never had to do that before, but I have to lean back. I have to make that face too when I do it, to see so I can actually look at what I'm looking at. And so John has this, this weird little story, and yet, as we've often said in Revelation, almost everything that we see in the symbolism, symbolism of it has Old Testament connections. And so if we go to what the Old Testament connection is, that can help us understand what John is saying in this New Testament passage. And so there is an Old Testament story of somebody else who also ate a scroll, and that was Ezekiel. You can find that story in Ezekiel chapter 3. And so Ezekiel also has this divine encounter. Ezekiel also is given a scroll. Ezekiel also is told, eat this scroll. And Ezekiel also says it tastes very sweet as he eats it. Ezekiel doesn't have the stomach turn in the same way. But other than that, the story is pretty much identical. And so for Ezekiel... This is the beginning of his story, Ezekiel chapter 3. We're right at the beginning of his book. And for Ezekiel, in this divine encounter as the scroll comes, the scroll very much seems to symbolize the call of God on his life. That Ezekiel is told, eat this scroll, and as he eats it, God says to Ezekiel, now go and prophesy to my people. And this is what your life is going to be like as you go and do that. And so that's essentially what happens to John as well. John is told, eat this scroll, and as he eats it, John too is told, go and prophesy, not just to the people of Israel, but to many peoples and kings and languages. And so for anyone reading in the first century, they would have made that connection probably pretty quickly and went like, oh, what's happening to John is a lot like what happened to Ezekiel. Ezekiel received this calling and this commission through eating this scroll, and now John is receiving the same thing. This scroll most likely symbolizes the divine call, the gifting, the commission that God was giving to John. And so John eats the scroll, and he is told, now you go and prophesy. You go and fulfill the gifting that's on your life. You go, and, and you go live that out now. And so I think the scroll, the little scroll, that's what that represents, is that it's the call of God. It was the call of God on Ezekiel's life, his gifting and his calling and his commission. And it is the call of God, his gifting, his commission on John's life as well. And although we might not have an encounter where we're literally eating stuff that's, you know, tastes good and, and makes our stomach sick later, that is true of all of us as well. Although our encounter might not be that profound, we all also have a gift, we have a call, we have a commission from the Lord, every single one of us. And what is so interesting about John that scholars debate endlessly is how come it turned his stomach sour, right? It tasted really good, and then it actually turned his stomach sour. Not enough to, like, delay anything. He carries on in the story just fine. He's not, like, super sick or anything. 
But I think it's not that hard to make the argument that, hey, the call of God sometimes is sweet and sometimes is sour. Right? Jesus likened it to, hey, you're going to have to pick up your own cross and follow after me. Like, not everything about it is going to be blessing. There is going to be blessing. There's going to be sweetness to it. And then there's parts about following Jesus that are hard. I love being a pastor. There are parts about being a pastor that are very sweet. There are parts about being a pastor that are sour. I love being a dad. There's things about being a dad that I love. There's things about being a dad that are really difficult. And same with being a husband or being a friend or a brother. Like, we all have these calls on our lives, and there's parts about them that are amazing, and then there's parts about them that are really difficult. Jesus says to follow after me, you get to know the Lord, you get your sins forgiven, you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you get reconciled with God, you get to boldly come before the throne of God. All sorts of sweetness come from following after Jesus, but it's also this journey of crucifying your flesh and laying yourself down and putting others ahead of yourself and not always getting what you want and submitting your will to the will of God. There's parts of it that are challenging, but it's all good. And so Ezekiel and John have this this very visual picture of I am receiving the call, the gift, the commissioning of God in my life. I've never had a moment quite that clear, but for John, it's, hey, you're going to go out and prophesy, and there's going to be ridiculous blessing that comes to you as you do that, but there's also going to be hardship. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be trouble. Not everything about it is going to be sweet. There's going to be parts of it that struggle. And so as Jesus lives out his life on earth, that's his life as well. That he walks in the power of God, an intimacy with God that nobody had ever known before, getting to, to see miracles happen and getting to know the heart of God and live that out on earth and reveal God to humanity. So much good stuff. But of course, there is a cross involved, that there is a death that is going to happen. And, and the name that Isaiah would give forecasting Jesus would be a man of sorrows, that not everything about his earthly life was going to be a party, that there was going to be crucifixion involved. And there is a crucifixion happening for all of us. We are being crucified with Christ. We are laying our sin down. We are laying our self down. We are laying our flesh down. And we are in this lifelong journey to subdue the flesh that the holiness of God, that the Holy Spirit might become more and more prominent and our ugly, selfish, fleshy side would become less and less and less. And that's not easy. There's sacrifice involved. There's difficulty involved. And so to follow Jesus isn't always easy. It's, it's to take up a cross. And of course, it's to take up a cross with the understanding that the blessings far outweigh the tough stuff and that resurrection is always the end of the story. That it always ends with life. And anything I have to lay down in this life, I know will be rewarded later. And any difficulty I have to go through in this life will be something that I get to surpass in eternity if nowhere else. But the blessing of the gospel is that Jesus Jesus came and did it all. He embraced the good. He embraced the bad. He embraced the pain. He embraced the ugly. He did that because he loved us. He did that to bring us back to God. That as Jesus goes to the cross, he deals with our sin. As Jesus rises from the dead, he deals with our death. And then he invites us all to come and follow him and receive all the sweetness that comes with it. But also understanding, yes, there is a price. And in Luke's gospel, people come, uh, Luke 9, I think it is, and they are trying to follow Jesus, and Jesus actually seems to be turning them away. And not that he doesn't want them to follow, but he just he says basically, make sure you're counting the cost of this. Because if Jesus is Lord, it means I'm not Lord anymore of my own life. 
And I am born as a baby wanting to be Lord of my own life. As a two-year-old, fully confident that I know better than my parents, right? Like that's just from the earliest of ages, we want to be in charge. But for those of us who bow our knee to Jesus, we are saying, okay, so I'm actually putting you in charge now. I'm going to do this your way. I'm going to be willing to lay myself aside, my desires aside, my will aside, but not just in the sense of sacrifice, but in trust that, hey, if you don't want me to do something, I'm just going to trust in your goodness that you know that that's not the right thing for me to do. That's not the right direction for me to go. That's not the right way that I should be taking So Jesus, in his life, embraces both the sweet and the sour. And so when these trials come, when difficulties come, when struggles come, when hardship comes, uh, we can complain all we want, but it's also like, here's the cards that you were dealt, right? And if you're playing a game and you're dealt a bad hand of cards, you can complain all you want, but those are the cards that you got, and your choice is what do you do with those cards? How are you going to play them? Because complaining isn't going to change that reality. And so we were all in this COVID season. We didn't ask for it. It's the hand we were dealt. We can complain all we want, but that doesn't change the fact that it's the hand we were dealt. So we're not in control of a lot of things, but we are absolutely in control with how we respond. And that is where I get so inspired by the people of God. As we watch people go through trials of all kinds, and and in my ministry to seeing people go through all sorts of stuff, and seeing the choices that they make. It was Marissa Gleason going through cancer treatment dancing on this stage in worship because she was not willing to let that get in the way of her worship in any way. She just wasn't willing to let that happen. It's talking to different people over the last year. Rick Gerard in our church laid off for much of the last year because of COVID, and yet every time I saw him said, no, I'm doing great. We had to make some changes about stuff, but we're just making the best of it, and I'm enjoying the time with my wife, and I'm finding some things to do around the house, and just choosing peace, choosing joy in the midst of all of it. It was our one a lady on our kids' lead team who said, you know what, to be honest, I don't like these masks at all and I don't really want to wear them, but I'm not going to let anything stop me from preaching the gospel to our kids. This is a life and death matter and no mask is going to get in the way of that. And I thought, wow, this is incredible that just people are laying themselves down and they're not letting things stop their worship and they're not letting things steal their joy or steal their peace. Like we can't control the cards we were dealt. We absolutely control how we play them and what we do with it. And nothing was ever promised to us in scripture or in the gospel that everything was always going to be amazing wall to wall all the time. That's a very North American prosperity gospel approach that to say when you walk with Jesus, you're never gonna have a problem or that everything's always gonna work out exactly the way you want. That's not something the Bible ever says. The promise is, is that even when you go through the valley, you won't be alone. That even in the struggle, there is peace available. There is joy available. There is life available every single time. Come on up, worship team. We're just about ready to wrap up here. And it comes from the trust that Jesus knows everything. I don't need to know everything because Jesus knows everything. I can embrace the sweet and the sour as, as much as I can. And goodness knows I do it far from perfectly. But when, when the sour comes, we say, okay, I don't always get it. But Jesus knows everything. Jesus knows it all. Jesus is working everything out in accordance with his will for his glory and ultimately for my good, even if I don't see it or understand it at the time. Jesus, who is the source of 
of all blessing, who is the source of all peace, who is the source of everything we need. And we've said throughout this season, there is peace in his presence, guys. There is peace in his presence about everything that would rob our peace in this time. And our job is to continually come back to him over and over and over again. What are the things in this season that are robbing you of your peace? The solution is Jesus, regardless of what they are. And we're all struggling with different things, but Jesus is always the solution. When we don't know, hey, how does the trial end? How long? What's the right path? We don't always know that stuff. We don't have to know. We don't actually have to know any of it. We have to position ourselves with him so that we can hear from him, that we can sense his leading. What does he want us to do? Where does he want us to go? I don't need to be the smartest guy in the room. I need to be connected to the king of the universe. That's all I ultimately need to do. He will give me what I need to know in every decision, in every struggle, in every season, in every day. So as we've talked this year about thriving in 2021, how do we thrive in this time? How do we thrive, uh, not just survive, but thrive? And so first of all, it comes when we understand that we don't know everything and we're actually okay with that. We find peace in the not knowing. We can make our way to that place of peace that says, I don't know what's going to happen in my life two weeks from now, but I know God does. I don't know the end result of every different decision, and sometimes that can be overwhelming, but he knows that. And so I will thrive when I find peace in the not knowing. And that doesn't mean I'm totally off the hook in terms of I I just kind of give up and get passive, but it's, no, I'm going to press into him who knows everything. And I'm going to let him direct me in the way that I should go. I'm going to let him lead me by his Holy Spirit. So that's first. We will thrive when we find that place of peace, even in not knowing everything. And we will also thrive when we learn to embrace that sweet and sour side of God's call. And we don't have to like the sour. I hate the sour. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, jump up and down over it. But the understanding that there is joy in this life, there's sorrow in this life, there's wonderful seasons, there's challenging seasons, but God is God over all of it. He is king enthroned over even the flood, that he is the one in charge of it all. And so we recognize it not to become grumblers, not to become complainers, not to get bitter, not to get cynical, but to say, okay, so not everything that comes our way is amazing, but that was true of Jesus as well. So how did he respond? Well, he fixed his eyes on the joy set before him. He saw the other side of the trial, and he said, I'm persevering and enduring and pressing through to there by the strength of my Father, by the grace of God who leads me. Our job is to be like him. And so we seek him first and foremost. We seek the peace that comes from him. We're at peace with not knowing everything, knowing that he does, and we press into him for that. And we recognize there is sweetness and there is sourness in the call of God. All of it ultimately is for his glory. All of it ultimately is for our good. The Apostle Paul said, I am convinced that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That there is nothing we face in this life that will not be redeemed and restored and rewarded by the goodness of God. And it all just comes back again and again, as we always do to Jesus. Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, who was perfectly calm to fall asleep even in the middle of a storm out on the boat when he was out with his disciples on the lake. Jesus, who is anxious for nothing, who knows the end from the beginning, who does not worry, who is at peace always 
always in himself because he knows that he is God, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one that we seek. He is the one that we press into. He is the one that we worship today. And we want to worship him a little bit more before we go. And so as we do this at home, we say this every week, don't check out for the last song. I know some have said singing at home feels a little awkward. My solution to that is just crank up the volume super loud and then you won't hear anybody else and you can just have a nice engaged worship time with the Lord. But sing with your hearts to him who is worthy to be worshiped this morning and then we'll wrap up in prayer as we are done.